Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 7. going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll read verse 13 and 14. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. Let's pray once again. Father in heaven, Lord, we are thankful to come together this morning and to open up your word and to hear the precious words of your Son from heaven. And Lord, I ask that you would fill us each one with the Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear and understand the message that you have for the world from heaven. It's a very difficult message, Lord, this very hard saying. Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning and open up our hearts and may we see and understand your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a pluralistic, relativistic, and so-called tolerant culture today, don't we? Where sayings like this, which we just read, are politically incorrect and actually would draw the hatred of people. If, if you read this to people, and if you expounded on its meaning, men would hate that. Let's define some of these words. Pluralism. Pluralism is the concept that two or more religions with mutually exclusive truth claims are equally valid. So two or more religions who say the exact opposite thing and they're mutually exclusive are both equally valid. This posture often emphasizes religion's common aspects. Have you ever seen when you're driving around in town a car with the tag on it, coexist? Have you ever seen that? Coexist? That's pluralism. It's basically saying, yeah, these religions, although they say different things, we can all coexist. We can all, they're all equally valid. And let's emphasize what we have in common. So let's just forget about truth. It doesn't matter that the, that the truth claims contradict and that even though Christianity says uh, one thing about God and Islam or Buddhism says another thing about God, and they can't both be right. Let's just forget about truth. Truth doesn't really matter. Let's just talk about what we have in common. What do we have in common? Well, we all believe in doing good, so let's just join together and be moralistic. And that's basically what happens in a pluralistic society, is moralism becomes the most important thing. Basically, just let's just forget about God and, and truth about him, and let's just talk about how we can be good people together, because that's what we have in common. Or, as, we were, as I did mention earlier, what is it about God that's great? Well, as Christians, we see that ultimately what makes God great is Christ. 
and what he did for us on the cross. But if we ignore that, I think we could have a lot in common with other religions in just magnifying the awesomeness of God as revealed in nature. I think we could agree with a Jewish person or a Muslim or, or a Mormon that God's creation is beautiful and amazing. So let's just forget about Jesus and let's just talk about how awesome God is as a creator. So that's pluralism. Relativism. Relativism is the concept that points of view have no absolute truth or validity. Having only relative subjective value according to differences in perception and consideration. I mean, there is no absolute truth. When you say something, it's just a matter of your perspective, and for someone else, it's a different perspective. So there's no absolute truth. So we live in a pluralistic and relativistic culture. For an example of relativism, he plays the piano very well. Well, relatively speaking, yes. Uh, compared to that little child who hardly plays the piano at all, he plays the piano very well. But compared to a professional pianist, he doesn't play the piano very well at all, right? So that's an example of relativistic, uh, a relativistic saying or statement. And there's some truth to that. We can agree with the relativists that there's some truth to that, that uh, relativism plays a part in, in our outlook on life. But relativists take that all the way. They take it too far, and they eliminate the possibility for absolute truth altogether. So they take a little bit of truth, that there is something to be said about perceptive, perception and point of view, and they take that all the way and eliminate truth altogether. So if you said he plays the accordion, when he plays the piano, you can't say that's false. Maybe he does play the accordion, even though he's sitting at the black and white keys playing the piano. There is no absolute truth, the relativist says. The question to ask the relativist is, is that true? Right? Because that sounds like an absolute truth claim. Tolerant. Tolerant culture. Number three. Tolerance comes from the Latin word tolero, means to bear. That's what tolerance means. The capacity to endure is tolerance. The capacity to endure could be the capacity to endure pain. How much pain tolerance do you have? The capacity to endure poisons and drugs. If someone sticks a poisonous drug inside of your body, how much capacity does your body have to endure that? It could be uh, the, the poppycock tolerance, capacity to endure people saying nonsense things. And if necessary, all three of these things at the same time. Pain, poison, and poppycock. <laughs> how much tolerance do you have? And we claim to live, I claim that we live in a tolerant culture. Now, the interesting thing is this, is that Christians, as Christians, we hold our point of view intolerantly. What we believe is intolerant. Excuse me. We believe in something that isn't tolerant of other views. We believe in one God. If someone comes along and says, there's many gods, we're not tolerant of that point of view. What we believe is exclusive. But we hold our view tolerantly. Meaning, if someone disagrees with us, we don't kill them or arrest them or throw them into prison. We don't ridicule them. We disagree with them, and we won't. Our point of view is intolerant of what they believe, but we hold it tolerantly. Christians ought to be people who are gracious to those who they disagree with. However, this culture that we live in, they hold a very 
tolerant point of view, which is that oh, all religions are equally valid and everyone can believe what they want to believe and, and uh, you have the right to believe whatever you want to believe, but they hold that very intolerantly. So if you disagree with them in their point of view, then they're not very gracious to you and they'll get angry with you and they might even hurt you if you don't believe in tolerance the way they do. So that's the lesson. Tolerance up here doesn't make you tolerant in your actions toward other people. And really, the opposite is true. When you hold an intolerant view in your mind, it actually ought to make you tolerant towards other people. G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance up here is a virtue of the man without convictions. If you basically say there is no truth and everything is, is true and you can have your way. Frederick Nietzsche, he said, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it doesn't exist. That's what Nietzsche said. And doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sort of epitomize our culture? You have your way, I have mine, and there is no right way. Now, that's the opposite of what Jesus says. See, Jesus is not popular today. Or at least the apostolic biblical Jesus is not popular today. There's a version of Jesus that's popular today. It's the I'm not the way, the truth, and the life Jesus that's popular today. But not the biblical Jesus of the Bible because the biblical Jesus of the Bible is exclusive and he makes absolute truth claims about himself. Turn with me to John 18. John 18, verse 37. Jesus here describes why he came into the world. Pilate therefore said unto him, John 18, 37, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus, he said, I am the truth. I've come into the world to bear witness of the truth. And if you're of the truth, you hear me. And if you don't listen to me, you're not of the truth. You're of your father, the devil, who's a liar. This is the words of Jesus. Not popular sayings today. Many times when Jesus would say something, he'd say, truly, truly, I say unto you. Saying, what I'm about to tell you is true. And if you disagree with me, then you are believing a lie and not the truth. And the complaint is, well, when you're absolute, when you believe in absolute truth, and when you make claims like that, that this is the way, this is the truth, you have to believe me, you have to go this way in order to be saved, and you can't go another way. People complain and say, doesn't that divide and separate people? When you think in absolute terms, when you're not pluralistic, when you're not relativistic, when you're not tolerant up here, doesn't that divide and separate people? And the answer is no. Actually, just the opposite. Do you believe that it's the opposite? You see, when we believe in truth, we then have a reference to interact with people. But with this pluralistic, relativistic, tolerant, 
culture, what happens is it isolates and fragments people because everyone's in their own little universes. You create your own reality, but it's not that person's reality. You can believe in Jesus if you want, and you can believe in God, and you can believe that Jesus is the only way, but don't put that onto him. He can believe his own thing. And so now it actually isolates and fragments you from other people because you can't have a meaningful conversation with someone anymore because there is no real truth. They're not interested in really hearing from you because they don't believe that there is truth at all. And that's exactly what happens. Then we don't want to talk about things anymore. Let, you just have what you believe, I have what I believe, and let's just not talk about it because it's going to get us nowhere because there is no truth anyway. So the reality is, is that the way our culture is actually isolates and fragments people instead of bringing them together. Whereas Christianity and believing in the truth of Jesus, the absolute exclusive claims, brings us together. Because now I can look at a person and understand who they are and I can speak to them meaningfully. Another Christian, I can have meaningful discussion. And even a non-Christian, I can have meaningful discussion. I can say, did you know you are created in the image of God? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that you're on a broad road that leads to destruction? And I'm connecting with that person in a real sense, even though they might not believe as I believe. Does that make sense? Do you understand how relativism and pluralism isolates us and fragments us? Does that make sense? And how absolute truth, while it seems at first to sep it seems like it would be restrictive and separatory, it, it doesn't. It actually is the reference point whereby I can communicate with others. So the devil's lies, well, they look good and they promise freedom. They actually bring us into bondage. And God's truth, while it seems restrictive, sets us free. I think our culture has never been so unrelational. And people are isolated from each other and from God because they've bought this lie that there's no truth. And so basically, just live your own life for your own pleasure and People are, I think, starving for truth and relationship with God and other people. Jesus offers that. It's interesting that division, it takes division to bring us together. It takes the ability to say something is false and something is true to bring people together. One of the very first things God did when he created the world was to divide light from darkness. So division isn't a bad thing to God. In many Eastern religions, it's all about destroying division and blurring everything together so that there's no distinctions, nothing is false, and nothing is true. It's the opposite with God. He creates the world. He said, God divided the light from the darkness, and he said, that's light and that's darkness. And he gives us a reference point for living in this world. It takes division to bring us together. Did you know the word confusion? If you break the word down, is with fusion. And it actually means, in Latin, to mix so as to have no distinction. When you're confused, your mind is a blur, and you're not able to distinguish between what's false and what's true. That's what confusion is. To not be confused is the opposite. It's to have a clear mind with distinction and division. And you can say, this is true and this is false. And it takes that to bring people together and to bring you with, together with God. Now, Jesus says here, he points out a division. Jesus presents us with a division. He presents us with two paths, a true path and a false path. One to destruction, 
and one to life. Is that true? Do you believe Jesus when he says this, that there's two paths? There's one to destruction and there's one to life. You can only be on one. And it's a matter of life and death for each one of us because each one of us, according to Jesus, will either end up in life or in destruction. So this is really important. Where will you end up? Now this is a theme throughout the Bible, this dichotomy between two things. And because it's in the Old Testament so clearly, it's even a, a Jewish, you see it in Jewish writings as well. There's two kinds of people. There's the righteous and there's the unrighteous. There's the wise and there's the fools. There's the Jews or the people of God and there's the Gentiles, those who aren't the people of God. There's the wheat and the tares, Jesus says. There's the sheep and the goats, Jesus says. And here he says there's the narrow path and the wide path. There's the straight gate and the broad gate. You're either in the kingdom or you're not in the kingdom. You've either entered in or you haven't. Two paths. Now when Jesus says enter in in verse 13, he's talking about entrance into the kingdom. Look at verse 21. Of, verse, of chapter 7 in Matthew. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's got the kingdom of heaven in view, and we know this especially because in Luke chapter 13, uh, Luke actually conflates these two passages. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, and Matthew 7, 21. He's actually talking about the same thing. So in Luke, he says, enter in by the narrow gate because many will come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we this and that? And he says, I'll never knew you. So Luke conflates the two. Jesus is talking about you entering into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Jesus' concern is that you enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the place where the righteous go. It's the place of blessing because of righteousness. It's the place of life. In Matthew 25, Jesus says to those on his right hand, enter in to the kingdom that's been prepared for you, you blessed of my Father. And it says these will go into eternal life. So the kingdom of God is equated with eternal life for the people of God. Outside of the kingdom is the place of cursing. When someone is cursed because of their unrighteousness, they're not allowed entrance into the kingdom of God. They're in death and they're alienated from God. Jesus says in verse 23 of Matthew 7, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity, or you lawless ones, you lawbreakers. The law condemns you. You're guilty. You're unrighteous. And you're not allowed in to this place of blessing and life because of your sins. He says there's a broad road that leads to destruction. Now many people think that when Jesus talks about destruction, he's talking about annihilation. Well, it sounds like that. If someone's destroyed, it's, it seems like they exist no longer. So some people think that when a person dies without Christ, then they are annihilated and they don't exist anymore. But the, the Greek word here is not destruction, but ruin. There's a road that leads to ruin. John MacArthur pointed out that this is not talking about the end of being, but the end of well-being. There's a road, brothers and sisters, that leads to the end of well-being. John Bunyan said, when a man goes to hell, he can say goodbye to all pleasures forever. 
There's an end of well-being. Now here on this earth, people say this is hell. It's not because there's not an end of well-being here, is there? Even those who don't know Christ have it pretty good. Hell is a place where there is no good, but only ruin. And there's a road that leads to it, Jesus said. A very bleak picture, but Jesus talks much about hell. Not because he's cruel, not because he's mean, not because he just wants to frazzle you and make you not sleep at night. Jesus talks about hell because hell is a reality, and Jesus loves you, and God loves you, and doesn't want you to go there. He doesn't want you to go down that broad path that leads to ultimate ruin. And so he talks about it because he cares. He commands you to get off that path. He commands you to depart from the broad road that leads to destruction and to enter into the kingdom of God. He's saying this to all men. All men are commanded to enter in to the kingdom of God and be saved. Not all of Christ's commands are legal. This is not a legal commandment where he's saying, if you enter in, then I will let you come in. If you enter into the kingdom of God, that will show me that you're a good person and then I'll save you. He's not saying that. This isn't a command, a moral commandment. This isn't him saying, here's my commandments, you obey it, and then you'll be worthy for me to save you. This is a non-moral, non-legal command where he's saying, jump, you're in danger, grab on. He's commanding you to be saved. It's not an if-then. And where does he tell you to enter in by? How does he describe this? Jesus says, enter in at the straight gate. That's the narrow gate. It's so narrow that to get through it means pressure. John Bunyan, have you ever read uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners? That biography, autobiography? He, um, he once had a picture of the narrow gate and he came along this wall to this gate, which represented this straight gate, and it was so narrow that he had to work at it to even get through it. That he had to like stick one arm in and kind of wiggle around and fight the pressure of getting through that confined space to get to the other side. That was his picture of how narrow that gate really was. But the thing to notice now is that if Jesus tells you to get onto the narrow path and enter through the straight gate, and yet he only presents us with two roads that you could be on, it means that to not enter into the narrow gate means that you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. If you haven't entered in, if you haven't gotten through the gate, then where are you? According to Jesus, you're on the broad road that leads to destruction. And this gives us some insight into how not to be saved. Let me give you three ways to not be saved, my friends. Number one, don't do anything. Just ignore that there's a problem. Just pretend that you don't need to be saved. Don't listen to Jesus when he says, grab on, jump, enter in. Just do nothing and go with the flow and you won't be saved. Or number two, don't make it a priority to be saved. Don't make it a priority to listen to Jesus. Say, yeah, I do need to be saved. I do need to listen to Jesus, but I'll do it someday, but just not today. Put it off and ignore the time. Or number three, do the wrong thing. Ignore his instructions. Think, oh, I don't want to go to destruction. Jesus is saying, I've got to go to destruction. Okay, I've got to find that gate. But that, not the straight gate, some other gate. 
ignore the, the instructions and do the wrong thing. So three ways to not be saved. Do, don't do anything. Don't do anything right now. Put it off. Or do the wrong thing. Sadly, Jesus says, how many people are on the road to destruction? He says, many. Many people are on the road to destruction. And he also says, how many people will be saved? This is the words of Christ, not my own words. Few. Only few will be saved. And that should cause us to, to think very seriously about this. If many people will not be saved, according to Jesus, but only a few. If you want to know which religion takes this teaching of, is in accordance with this teaching of Jesus, ask them how many people will be lost. Right? If you want to know which religion is in accordance with this teaching of Jesus, just go ask someone, how many people do you think will be lost? Who will be damned? And most religions in this world will say, very, very, very few. Only the really, really bad. Even if they're not maybe my religion, they're still good and God will let them in. Isn't that common? Seems like it's only the Christians who are in accordance with this teaching. And that's what the world hates them for, right? The world hates us as Christians when we talk like that. You ask a Christian, how many people will be damned? They say, sadly, and I take no pleasure in this to say, but many people, and only a few will be saved. And say, ah, oh, you bigot. But we're just listening to our Lord. Most people ignore Jesus thinking all is well. Most people do not think they're in trouble. They don't think they're on a road that leads to, to ultimate ruin. They don't believe that. They don't think that they're that bad. Why would anyone send me to hell? Brad, before you became a Christian, you said, if I'm going to hell, there's going to be a long line of people behind me, right? That was a statement of sarcasm because he didn't think he was going there. People console themselves that they're like everybody else. I'm okay because I'm just like everybody else. I'm not doing anything different than the average person. I'm okay. And that's, Jesus, that's precisely the problem, Jesus says. If you console yourself because you're like everybody else and you're not doing anything different than the average person, Jesus says, beware. Don't take comfort in that. And ironically, that's where people take comfort. And so many won't be saved. Others procrastinate. They put it off. And why do they do that? Maybe they have other priorities. Why does anyone procrastinate? Why does a child procrastinate when he's told to clean his room? Because he doesn't want to clean his room. It's arduous. And he has other things that he wants to do. And Jesus says in verse 14, the reason why many people will go into this to destruction is because, the beginning of verse 14, because... Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and only if you find it. He says it's difficult. To get through the narrow gate, you have to find it, first of all, which requires seeking. People miss it. And to go through it means pressure. And so people think, oh, I'll just put it off. I know it's important, but I'll put it off. Jesus says, don't put it off. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make that your priority. Let nothing come between you and entering in. 
So now we need to ask, what exactly is this gate? Brothers and sisters, whatever the gate is, whatever the gate is, it has to do with righteousness. Entrance into the kingdom of God has to do with righteousness. And we get this from all over the Bible, and we get this from the Sermon on the Mount itself, that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be righteous. You remember Jesus said that in chapter 5? He says in chapter 5, in verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. He says in chapter 7, which I've already read, he says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you, you lawless ones. So those who don't get into the kingdom of heaven are unrighteous, and those who enter into the kingdom of heaven are righteous. The Apostle Paul also says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says in Matthew 25, Then the righteous will enter into life eternal. So whatever the gate is, it has to do with righteousness, and it's at this point that we're confronted with the difference between what the Pharisees taught about entering the kingdom and what Jesus taught about entering the kingdom because, brothers and sisters, the Pharisees also taught that you needed to enter the kingdom. Remember, the Pharisees taught that there were two ways also. And there's righteous and unrighteous, and there's Jews and Gentiles, and there's wise and fools, and they taught that you need to enter into the kingdom of God also. Entrance into the kingdom of God was important for the Pharisees. But here's the difference. The Pharisees taught also that to get into the kingdom of God you had to be righteous but they taught that righteousness was obtained for, for you and each one by obedience to the law of God so you need righteousness to get in Jesus and the Pharisees would say yep and you need to get in yep and there's two paths yep and to get in the Pharisees say you got to obey the law and Jesus would say nope you're wrong not because obeying the law is a bad thing but that righteousness will not come by obeying the law. Proverbs 16.25 says, There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. The Pharisees thought that was right. Well, obeying the laws are a good thing. God commands us to obey, and so therefore you've got to obey to get in. It seems right. Jesus says that way leads to death, and you're ignoring the instructions. You're trying to get in by a different gate if you take that road. The Pharisees thought they were righteous. The Pharisees didn't think they were going to destruction. They didn't think most of their Jewish people were going to destruction. But Jesus called them out as hypocrites and showed them the truth of the law. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the whole point of much of the Apostle Paul's preaching, was to show people that righteousness doesn't come by obeying the law because the law demands a perfect righteousness. The law demands blamelessness. The law demands sinlessness. And if you want to be righteous before God by obeying the law, then you have to actually obey it. You can't just talk about obeying the law. You can't talk about how good it is to obey the law. You can't talk about how we should obey the law and not do it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Just ask yourself, do you consider yourself to be an obedient person this morning? Do you consider yourself to be obedient to the law of God. Now, it seems obvious to us as Christians that we aren't, 
but I just want everyone to just think about this, that most people in the world do consider themselves to be obedient to the law of God. But if you ask them, so you don't sin? They'll say, oh no, I do sin. I'm just not perfect, but I am obedient. Do you, I asked a student on campus once, do you obey the commandments? He said, yes. And then I asked him again, do you obey the commandments? He said, no. <laughs> How come I had to ask him twice? <laughs> There's a confusion in people's minds. They think they're obedient. They want to think they're obedient. Why? Because they don't have any other hope. Because they don't know another way. They don't know another gate. And so to admit disobedience is to lose all hope altogether. And they don't know that there's another way. Jesus shows us the truth. Though we need righteousness to enter the kingdom, it will not come by obeying the law. My friends, if I stood here Sunday after Sunday and preached against sin and said, you need to stop sinning, Peter. This week, you need to stop sinning. Not only this week, but next week after that, and the next month and the next year, and for the rest of your life, you need to not sin if you want to enter the kingdom of God. And if I preached until I was blue in the face that you had to stop sinning in order to be accepted by God, then we'd all perish if you followed my advice, if you tried to follow my advice. The law demands that perfection but the reason why we don't obey is because the, the reality is, is that we are sinners. We are not good people, and we deserve destruction. If we were good people, we wouldn't deserve destruction. But Jesus said, you need to get off the road that leads to destruction, because that's exactly where you're going if you don't get off the road. Though the Sermon on the Mount doesn't say, because it wasn't Jesus' purpose at this time, to say it. But the whole purpose of Christ's coming was to die for our sins. And that's what the whole New Testament is all about. It's what the whole Old Testament is all about. It's what the whole mission of the Messiah was all about. That God sent his Son because righteousness doesn't come by the law. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. If you could be righteous by obeying the commandments, Jesus died for nothing. But grasp this. He died on the cross for your sins because... Righteousness does not come by the law. There is no way for you to be saved apart from his atoning death on the cross. And because God knew that, and he looked at you and says, yet yeah, you deserve destruction, you should be destroyed because of your sin, you won't obey, and the only way is to, for you to be saved is if I do something. But why should I do something? There's nothing in you that tells me you deserve me to do anything. It was purely, purely because of God's love for you that he sent his son to die for you. Purely. It wasn't mixed. It wasn't a little bit of love and a little bit of your worthiness. It was all of your unworthiness and purely his love for you which sent his son to be your righteousness by him taking away your sins by dying for them on the cross. And the gospel reveals the love of God for sinners. It's all about knowing his love for you in Christ 
and taking that gate and being saved. My friends, righteousness is a gift through faith. If you want to enter the kingdom of God and be saved, if you want to get off the broad road that leads to destruction, if you want to be righteous and blameless in God's sight, then believe in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and put your trust in him and not in yourself and in your own obedience to the law. Then you'll enter in and be saved. Now, of course, the objection is, well, doesn't this contradict the passage? Because it says the gate is difficult and straight and narrow. And that's the number one objection, isn't it? That way is too easy. Christians, you even contradict Jesus. You said it's difficult, it's hard, it's narrow, it's pressure in order to be saved. And you're saying all you got to do is believe? That's easy. The Pharisees are the ones who have it difficult. They have to obey. How many times have you ever heard someone say, oh, it's too easy? They accuse our way of not being difficult. And brothers and sisters, it's a very important point. But in one sense, the gospel is easy and not difficult. And in another sense, it's extremely difficult. If you read the Bible, you get the impression that salvation is extremely easy. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. All you need to do is put your hope in Christ. Now, when you read the Bible, you also get the impression that salvation is extremely difficult because all you need to do is believe in Jesus and put your hope in Christ. And why that's difficult is because, well, it's easy to simply believe in him. It's hard because it draws the hatred of the world. It's hard because it draws the hatred of of the death. And it's hard because it's hard to believe that God is that good and to depart off the mainstream path upon the lonely, narrow path where only a few are. And brothers and sisters, this is what you see in the Bible. If you look at the book of Acts, it was very easy to be saved, just believe. But when you look at the book of Acts, what you see is the Christians are kicked out of their homes, kicked out of the synagogues, driven from place to place, ridiculed and persecuted and even killed because of their faith, because the world hates the truth of Jesus. They hate his exclusivity, that he says, I'm the only way, and they hate it when you say that, and they hate the absoluteness of his truth. If you don't believe in me, you're not of the truth. So when Jesus says here the way is narrow, it's because only a few are on it and the world hates you for being on it. Believing in Jesus is indeed taking up your cross because the, world the, the same world that crucified Jesus will also seek to crucify you. Just do a simple study of Christian history and you'll see that true Christians who believed in God's grace always had it difficult, though believing is easy. But on the other hand, the Pharisees' way is actually easy because you get to compromise the law. Everybody's doing it. You get accolades from men, and the devil doesn't bother you. It's pretty easy. 
And it seems to make sense when you don't know God, when you don't know the love and the grace of God, it seems to make sense to you that you have to obey, right? But of course, no one obeys. And it's easy because you just get to compromise the law. I'm obedient, but I'm not perfect. Yeah, I'm going to be there. If people were saved that way, how easy it would be to enter the kingdom of God. But believing in the gospel means renouncing your own righteousness and trusting in another, in the goodness of another, goodness that is so far beyond any goodness that you can even comprehend. It's difficult to believe that when the whole world is trying to snuff that faith out. So brothers and sisters, it shouldn't discourage us if as Christians we find ourselves to be few and not many, if we find ourselves to be hated and persecuted or abandoned by our families who don't believe or our friends who don't believe or even killed. That shouldn't surprise us when Jesus said only a few find it. It shouldn't discourage us because we know that we have eternal life and that we know the Father. And it's worth it. It's worth getting off that broad road that's very easy, Jesus says. The broad road is easy. That's why people go down it. It's worth getting off the broad road. It's worth going against the current of the world. It's worth being hated by our culture even killed for your faith in Jesus Christ and in righteousness that comes through him. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're either not believing what I'm telling you or you're putting it off or you're trying to be saved another way. You're trying to be saved by your own righteousness or maybe you've given up that but you're just not doing anything about what I'm saying. You're not believing. Then heed Jesus' warning this morning to get off the broad road and to get through that narrow gate of faith in him. Count the cost and see that it's worth it to lose everything for him. And if you are a Christian this morning, then be encouraged that if you have believed that you have eternal life and you will not come to ultimate ruin, but brothers and sisters, what we have to look forward to is life forever in the blessed kingdom of our Father in heaven. And that is awesome. We've been forgiven. We know the Father. And we have unspeakable riches in Him. And also, one final exhortation. Just as Jesus was calling people to get off the road and to get into that narrow gate and be saved, we too as Him, as Christians who know Him and who know the truth, ought to also care for people who are not seeing the truth. Just as Jesus, because of the love of the Father, came and commanded people to get off that broad road, we too, as his people, ought to be interested in the salvation of men. And we ought to also put our neck on the line, like Jesus did, to call people off that road and to believe the truth and to put their faith in the grace of God. Where are you this morning? Have you entered in? Are you off the path? Are you helping others to see the narrow gate? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son into this dark world that was in bondage to the lies of the devil and still is in a large part. And we thank you for speaking the hard truth and speaking absolute truth 
and speaking exclusive truth, speaking that distinctive word that cuts into the confusion of the world and says, this is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Thank you for speaking that word, Lord, and thank you that through you we can have relationship with God and relationship with one another. And Lord, I just pray that you would encourage all the saints here this morning. Encourage them to be bold in sharing the gospel. And encourage them that persecution is a light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. Lord, we thank you. And we praise you for your love endures forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.